Welcome to Advancing the Conversation with Dr. Christy Carnahan and Dr. Kate Doyle from the University of Cincinnati's Special Education Department. I'm Ashley Barla, your host. We started this podcast in an effort to have real conversations about the role of self-determination in all our lives, specifically in supporting people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. If you're a teacher, a person interested in becoming a teacher, a parent, a sibling, or a person with a disability, this podcast is for you. We hope you'll join us on this journey as we learn about the role of self-determination in our lives. Thanks for having me. Patrick, why don't we start off by letting you introduce yourself to our audience. Tell us what you do for work and a little bit of background about you. Sure. So my name is Patrick Gober. I am the I will be soon here in about a month, the Director of Programs and Operations at Stepping Stones, which is a nonprofit organization in Cincinnati that work or provides program services for folks with developmental disabilities. We provide education programs, recreation and leisure programs, and adult day services for individuals with developmental disabilities ages 5 to 95. So I, I just started this job in July of 2022. And have just been learning all of the different programs that we have here, hit the ground running. And uh, yeah, my previous employment was with a organization called the Center for Independent Living Options, where I served as a disability rights and advocacy specialist. And uh, I also have a long background in academics. I have a law degree from Belmont University and a PhD in education policy with a focus on special education from Indiana University. Not that that's not all that exciting or anything. Patrick, I think that's there's a natural question in that, and that is, how has your educational and professional journey helped to define self-determination for you? How has self-determination been layered into all of the decisions that you've made in your professional and educational growth journey? Sure. So I'll try to briefly unpack that as, as, as well as I can. I, I like to tell everyone that my, my journey to working in the disability world is really just a family business. At this point, my, my stepfather was case manager for adults with disabilities for 40 years. My mother was a special education preschool teacher and then a faculty member who taught special education students or students that were training to become special education teachers. I also have an older brother with autism and myself, when I was working as a teenager, I worked for the Cincinnati Recreation Commission in their therapeutic rec summer camps, which were for kids and teenagers with disabilities. I really had no intention on being in the disability world for a career. When I went to college, I got my degree in political science and wanted to do politics, policy, that kind of stuff went to law school with kind of that same idea. And for the first about two years of my law school career, I was preparing to become a criminal defense attorney. I wanted to be in a courtroom, wanted to try cases, wanted to work on uh, criminal issues. And really wasn't until I myself had a health issue that I had a birth defect that they didn't find until I was 25. And I had a heart surgery in the middle of my second and third year of law school, which kind of threw everything in a, in a loop for me, that's normally the time if you've ever gone to law school where a lot of folks are finding and identifying where they're going to be working, getting internships or clerkships at different places. And I was just sitting on a lazy boy for the whole summer, just 
going, what am I going to do next? I had gotten really interested, though, during law school in education law. I thought that as I started talking to my mom, who was an educator and other folks about all of the different issues in education, the legal issues in education, I just got fascinated. And special education in particular, I have that family connection to it. But the more I started to dig into the legal side of special education and educating kids with disabilities, that just became something I was really interested in doing. But for me, I didn't know that I necessarily wanted to do it as an attorney. I really decided that for me, looking at the policy side, how can we fix some of these problems in special education so that they don't result in lawsuits or don't result in in confrontation between schools and parents. That was really what interested in me. I kind of pivoted and uh, while everyone else was trying to find a job after law school, I started researching to find what other schools I could go to and what other degrees I could. For me, I just, I had that itch to want to learn more. And that was a very difficult decision to take that leap of saying, I've worked so hard these last few years to set myself up to make money in a profession and follow along with all of my colleagues and classmates and what they're doing. But I, and this is something that I've recognized has guided me over my adult life is I've been willing to let myself listen to that voice in my head and say, Hey, this seems like it would be like a fun thing to do. I, I've really, really embraced that idea of I've always wanted to take the path in my career to having a job where I enjoy getting up every day and do it. I don't want to work just to make a paycheck. I don't want to work, get up and be like, oh, got to go in today. I am not looking forward to this. When I would gauge, do I do this? Do I not do this? I let that voice in my head where, you know, if it said, hey, this seems like it's a good fit for you. I just said, you know what? I'm going to listen to that and see where it takes me. And I did that going from law school into my PhD program. When I finished my PhD program, I was really interested in working in schools, but COVID. So I was like, great, there's no jobs for me available right now. So I had to do that again. I found a, a job with a nonprofit organization where they were looking for someone to do advocacy work for adults with disabilities. I had to listen to myself again and go, this isn't exactly what I was planning for, but it's available right now. It seems like it could be a great opportunity for me to learn new things about the disability world, learn more of the adult side of the issue, the legal issues they run into and figure out how to connect that with my interest in education. I think a lot of this has also been a result of me wanting to help families that have those teenagers with disabilities that are becoming young adults, navigating that transition from the education world into the adult world. Again, for me, it was just about listening to my, recognizing an opportunity that came up and, and saying, yeah, that would be a job that I would have fun doing. I would enjoy the work that I'm doing. And I've just let guide my decisions for probably the last 15 years. And it, I'll be honest with you, I go through probably every six months an existential crisis. I will call my mom. I will start crying and being like, why did I choose to do this? What am I doing? But I have to work through that. I have to let myself be vulnerable and then say, you know what? There is a reason I did it, I did it because I wake up and I've got the same positive energy about going into my job and doing what I'm doing. For me, that was more important than what the number of my bank account said or what the prestige of what I'm doing 
is and so yeah self-determination has really guided a lot of my decision making so for me i think it's one of the most important things to develop for yourself and to allow others to develop you know ashley we were talking so much in the earlier podcast about the role of families in supporting self-determination patrick's mom is one of my really good friends in life in work and i she's such a good example of someone who just supported those decisions and probably listened mostly maybe gave some advice but i think allowed a fa that family dynamic was certainly supportive of that also yep. so i have I have a connection to this because I see this as a parent. But one of the things that I enjoy about my life and raising a child that has a disability is the sibling thing. I always say brothers are my favorite. So I'm really curious about your viewpoint on this question, Patrick. And that is the way that you just described self-determination in your own professional journey, which is very interesting and impressive is quite simple. This looks like fun. I want to do it. And so my question is, do you think that you learned how to break things down that simply as a result of being a sibling of a person with a disability? Or do you think that your kind of simple decision-making ability to be like, this is fun, I'm going to do it. And to really break down the interest and say, it doesn't matter how much I make, doesn't matter what the prestige attached to it is. Do you think that that's a more helpful skill to help you support your brother? So chicken and egg, and maybe it's both, but I'm just really curious about what, where that source comes from. Yeah, that's a great question. I have to start by saying, I think that the support system around me was a huge reason why I was able to embrace that, that idea for myself of self-determination and my, my ability to take those leaps of faith multiple times in my life. I can absolutely say that without the support from parents saying, yes, you can do this. But financial support at times when it was necessary from family members or others that, that allowed me to feel like, okay, if I do this, I'm not having to make a decision solely on money because so many people have to make those decisions. Unfortunately, not everyone gets that opportunity to say, Hey, money doesn't have to be the number one priority in my life right now. I can make a decision based on my own interests and not what I have to do to provide or survive. I can't sit here and say that everyone can and should make those decisions as simply as I did. But I say that too, to share that I think that support system around someone is the reason why someone can develop those self-determination skills or embrace self-determination. I make the direct connection to my brother, Steve, who has autism. Like you said, Christy, my parents were ones that, and I will say this, we still argue about this, whether, you know, we're letting my brother make decisions for himself. And to me, when you're a parent or a sibling of someone with a disability, that is one of the hardest things for you to do is to not be that helicopter parent, not be worried about what happens if this goes wrong, letting your kid make a decision, make a mistake and learn from it. it's something that we, I think, take for granted when we have siblings, um, 
kids without disabilities because we think, okay, that's just a part of being an adult. I have to let them go, let them grow and fly. That, that mentality is so difficult to embrace, I think, when the person has a disability because you've lived your whole life trying to protect them, trying to keep them safe, trying to make sure that nothing happens to them. But, you know, what I've seen with my brother, especially compared to some of his friends who are the same age, you know, the difference between kid who graduated or went through their education program, but then after that, there wasn't really a plan set in place for how do we help this kid develop self-determination, independence, so that he or she can live and make decisions, make choices on their own to the best of their ability as an adult. So my brother has a lot of friends where they graduated, went back home, and they might have a job somewhere, bussing tables or doing something kind of entry level. They live at home. They live with their parents. Their nuclear group of people that they have relationships with outside of school, when you have friends, that, that group gets smaller and smaller as they get older and it only becomes their family members that they see a lot. And so they don't have those opportunities to get out, socialize with other people, learn these. And again, self-determination, independence, those are learned skills. You don't just inherently have those. You have to work on them, develop them, and then maintain them. And so I've seen so many of my brother's friends, they're living fine lives, but they haven't had those opportunities to make choices for themselves. And with my brother, when we gave him that opportunity to make choices, I started to see different things unlocked in his brain, different skills develop, different choices he's making and the reasons behind those choices that were like, who is this kid? Like, I, I would have never thought that my brother would have just decided on his own, hey, I'm going to go out to dinner with this person. I'm going to call him up. We're going to find a place to go. I'm going to figure out the bus route and go do it. Those are all discrete skills we helped him learn. But when he was 18, I would have never looked at my brother and been like, yeah, that's what he's going to do at 35. That's his Saturday night's going to be something that he figures out. I'm going to call him and say, hey, we're going to dinner. And he says, no, I'm busy. Not <laughs> something I would have thought of. I but, love it. But it happened because the support system around him encouraged self-determination and that it. At Steve's cubicle is our, we are next to each other in the office and A, he has a better social life than I do. Every time Agreed. I'm like, Steve, what yep. are you doing this weekend? <laughs> I got this plan and this plan. And another thing I love about Steve is I have a real like people pleaser component to my personality. And Steve very clearly will tell me he doesn't want to talk about something or <laughs> not interested in what I'm talking about. And I uh -huh. love it about him. So I'm like, you're right, Steve. I know you don't care about this. Let's move on. I just love I, I agree with you in terms of him being very self-determined. What is so important about this story is that Steve, for example, it, it's a process. Like you can suggest something to him and it might be a no, but he's going to come back to it. And it might be a year from now that it's going to come back up and he's going to engage it. But I think that the value in that, the, the, of that example is like that it doesn't, half you might not see the immediate result but it's you're it's there it, and he's he might not tell you he's thinking about it he might not you might not know and then all of a sudden he's like oh i'm gonna do this and you're like oh wow like he really did take that in and he is on his own doing it in his timeline and it might not be the timeline i thought it should happen but it it's but he's still gonna do it and that i think that's a big thing it's not our timeline it's not our story to write. It, we might want it to happen tomorrow, 
but he might say it's happening next summer and that has to be okay. Oh, Chrissy, great story for you, you to add to that. When Steve was getting close to being 21, it was just, we're coming up on his 21st birthday. So we're like, all right, Steve, you're going to turn 21. Are you going to drink? Are you going to have a beer? You know, you're able to, you know, Steve, why not? Hey, you're able to, we're not saying go out party and get hammered. If you want to have a beer, you're able to, you're legally like, no, I'm not going to do it. So with Steve, it's always about, you got to ask the right question. And we finally got to Steve is why not? Why are you continually saying, no, I'm not going to have, I can't. I graduated from the dare program. I made a promise. We are like, oh. And I love that. (laughs) Now, now here's the thing though. As soon, you know, I'm about three and a half years younger than him and I'm the middle child. He's the oldest. So when I started or was about to turn 21, Steve then all of a sudden decided, you know what? I want to have a beer with my brother. So that's why he made the decision as to when he could say, you know what, dare program, I'm done with it. Uh, This is more important. I'm, I know I made an oath, but I'm, I yeah. want to hang out with my brother and do adult. I love that though. And I, one of the reason I love that is because we've spent a little time on the podcast, Patrick, talking about how our own interest and values and preferences and that sort of thing can influence the, our support of somebody can negatively influence the, our support of somebody that we're trying to support in determining their self-determination values. That was a lot of verbs, but you hear what I'm saying. And what I love about what you just said is that you knew what Steve actually probably wanted to do, and you patiently waited for him to come to that decision while probably giving him supports along the way that really were going to help him socially in the end. Mm-hmm. The beer yeah, with your brother is a great social thing to do. Yep. And, and the same thing has happened with his kind of journey to having a roommate she's had now for the last three or four years. Early on, we, we would bring it up. We would always bring it up and he would always dismiss it. Like, no, I don't want that. But yeah, it just wasn't something that he was really interested at the time. And I, like you said, randomly, he just looked at us one day and was like, I think I want a roommate. And we were just like, okay, if you're ready. Now, of course, when that happened, my mother, being the OCD person that she was, could not stand how dirty the apartment with two guys living. That was us me having to say to her, look, this is new for him. This is new for his roommate. You got to think about it. When I was 18, 19 years old and had just started college, my, my dorm room was nothing good to look at. And you didn't look at me and say, I'm hiring a cleaner. I have to go in your room and clean it all the time and have a piece of equipment. I know you have your preferences, mom. You got to remember he's a college kid in that sense. We've got to let him kind of work through this. A certain level of dirty is okay. That's just life. We're all fine here. So yeah, it's absolutely just kind of letting him do that. Then also recognizing at times that you do have to assess when to try and put your hand on the wheel and help steer and when to sit in that passenger seat and be like, you know what? I'm just going to let this ride happen and see where it goes. Steve's roommate is one of my good friends. And I'm telling you, I've FaceTimed Chad in his room and I have bit, bitten my tongue as well because I'm like, <laughs> oh gosh. You can tell him he's in the room from the line of shredded cheese trailing from the kitchen down. I love it. I've got a question about those family values because sure. it is clear that your family has really good communication around how you're going to support Steve in his self-determination and in his independence. 
So how does that happen? Does it have to be something that's like formal discussions? Let's sit down and have coffee and talk about how we're going to continue to help him grow? Or does it just happen little by little? Kind of both. I think it's a series of sit-down conversations. I say that as words. I, I will certainly say that my, my position here at Stepping Stones and then my previous role as a, a disability rights and advocacy specialist, a lot of what I've focused on with the people with disabilities I've worked with is helping them be able to use their own voice, make their own decisions and think for themselves. And I know with our family, we have to, I'll, I'll use a legal term here. We have to be our own set of checks and balances. We need at different times, one of us to be the kind, the person who said, let him go, let him do it, let him make his own choices, because there's always going to be the other side of that seesaw where someone is saying, no, this is what I want to have happen. This is what I want him to do and when I want to do it. So I think it really is just having people that are supporting him, but also talking within themselves and just checking each other, making sure that we're all talking about there's major decisions that need to be made or somebody feels like there's a big issue that needs to be addressed with him that we take that second to go, okay, is this something that is, I want this to happen because I have my own set of preferences or interests or needs, or is this something where we're truly saying it's in this individual's best? And sometimes those are mutually exclusive. Sometimes they're not. And sometimes we have to say, yeah, we would prefer, obviously I would prefer. We would prefer to have a pristine, clean apartment because you don't want bugs. You don't want rodents or any kind of old growing or things like that. But there are stages to an immaculate, clean, pristine apartment. One that's just lived in, which is my house with my newborn kid and my wife right now. We've got dishes in places and things need to be swept. And that's just normal. So I think a lot of it does go back to, so this is, a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's connected. I always try to say, what would this conversation be like if this person didn't have a disability? What would we say? How would this conversation go? And how willing would we be to let this person make their own mind up? Or where would we stop ourselves from imposing something if this person didn't have a disability? I think that is actually something that's been underlying in some of our conversations and we might not always agree with each other wholeheartedly. When I bring that up, my mom might push back a little bit, but then she might go, you're right. Uh, this is a me thing. I'm being a mom. And sometimes she'll say, I don't care that I'm being a mom. I'm always <laughs> going to think this way. So there's that give and take. But I do believe that you do have to always start with what would, how would this go? Who I'm talking about didn't have a disability. And then only when we say it's necessary for health, safety, or another reason, should we start to bring in their disability and those other aspects of them into our thought process? Does the answer to that ever lead to more supports? Like, what are you thinking when you say that? I'm just thinking that maybe a young adult is having a really hard time with something that a counselor could help with. And maybe it's a mental health thing or a social interaction thing. Like I'm thinking so many adults in workplaces have issues with social interactions, appropriate social interactions. And 
so we might let it go a little bit too far because they have a disability and that disability might impact their ability to socialize. But if you ask the question, what would we be doing if Down syndrome or autism or CP wasn't layered on top of them, we would get a counselor in or we would have, we would bring in some supports from human resources or something like that. Sure. I've gotten caught in that as I've supported friends and clients before. Yeah. That's a great consideration. I think, I, I will say this. I know that our journey with helping my brother find his own self-determination has been layered with many different supports. It's not all things that we as a family have done. Steve, he has attended different social and recreational programs for folks with disabilities that are focused on going out in the community, doing social outings and events. We have him connected with service and support administrators through the developmental disability systems. He's attended the TAP program at the University of Cincinnati, where he went to college and learned how to do a lot of adulting in that college environment. It's not necessarily that counseling aspect that you're talking about, but I do think with Steve, a lot of our journey was reaching out to other outside individuals, Mm -hmm. professionals that could help him work on those skills. Again, so we remove ourselves, our non-objective, subjective interests in us imposing what we want to on him, letting other people take that reign and work with him on those skills so that we have that distance between us in allowing him to become an adult his own way, not having it be this thing where we're teaching him how to be an adult the way we want to, just like I naturally would have classmate professors, my own social circles. Those things are all informing me about how to be an adult, how to socialize, how to be the kind of person that I am today. Yeah, it's a little bit more professional and a little bit more arranged and organized. To me, I think that sentiment is the same. I think it's important that families reach out and identify whether it's counselors, whether it's organizations like Stepping Stones, where they can identify people and places that can help build those skills and provide those opportunities for someone to make their own choice. Ashley, I I think this probably because of my work. I think it's often more supports. I think it's probably some more supports Mm -hmm. for people who don't have disabilities too. And I think it's about helping people know, all of us, what our strengths and needs are and communicating those with other people. Kate, will you kind of talk about the like video texting thing that you've been doing? Sure. Yeah. We have been working a lot on self-determination in the workplace and we have really had some barriers in terms of working with employers and we're kind of People are really gung-ho in the beginning. They're like, yeah, we want to do this, we want to do this. And then it'll break down. And like, we're really good at giving lots of information. Like we excel in that as university level. And we are finding like, oh, the people at Airwork don't want to read our narrated or the our narrated PowerPoint, right? Like our go-to. And But we also found another barrier was this term disability confidence in terms of being able to approach them with a disability and give them honest feedback. They say it's, and I've been in the same boat. It's, oh, that person has autism. Should I give them the feedback right now? That was really rude when you said that to me. So I get it. And then I work in the field of disability. So for someone who maybe doesn't have a lot of experience to say that, and a lot of our natural supports are at the same level of job, right? It's just, I don't feel comfortable going into Christy and being like, this is how you should do your job, Christy. That's not my role. So we 
identify that as a barrier. So something we've been using is having any our individuals in our any of our programs record, we call it a self-determination video to share with people in their life. And in it, they talk about a goal that they're working on and what supports they would like from that person, perhaps an employer. So for example, we had a young woman we would go in and check on and they were like, uh, she's doing fine, but she's always on her phone, which was breaking a workplace rule. But the person who was her natural report said, I don't feel comfortable telling her to get off of her phone. Just I wouldn't say that to Christy during a meeting, like, Christy, get off your phone. What? Even if I'm thinking it, right? I wouldn't do that. However, when the young woman made a video and said, hey, my goal, right, is being focused at work and having workplace behaviors, please tell me to get off my phone when you see me do that. The natural support had a lot more confidence in supporting that person and reaching their goals. So it's just been really exciting to break down some of those barriers and find strategies. Like people will watch a 30 second video that you text them versus our 30 minute narrated PowerPoint. (laughs) And people want to help, but they just want to know the ways that are appropriate to help and what the person with a disability really wants. And so it really also empowered a person with a disability to say, this is what I'm working on and this is what I care about. It wasn't us saying that. And I'm thinking about pre-service teachers and people that are teaching now, like how they can solicit that information by simply asking questions and asking parents and community members to help their students to communicate that. That's so easy. Yeah, it's so easy. And it's, it's so basic too. But I will say this, Ashley, I think one of the, one of the, the things that I think a lot of pre-service teachers, it, something that I feel like we inherently have in our disability world though, is the first thought or the first thing we do is always ask the parents first. Yeah. It's always, what does your child want? And why don't we pivot and start with the child? What do you want? Then after we have them explain or give us that answer, then we can look at the parents and say, what do you think about that? What else do you think, you know, you would want for your child? I think that is something that inherently hasn't been how we've thought about working with folks with disabilities, especially in schools, because the IEP meetings, we've only recently gotten to the point of saying, yeah, no, the, the individual, the student should actually attend these IEP meetings, should participate in them. But then since we've had these meetings from maybe age five to age 15 or 16. And it might be that the child has to grow up before they're able as a teenager to finally meaningfully participate and express themselves. But we've gone 10 years now of talking to the parents and asking the parents what they want. And so I think it is something that a lot of teachers have to think about for themselves is how do I make sure that I'm always pivoting my intention and my questions towards the student, towards the individual, not always immediately first towards the parent. That's exactly what I meant. And what I see time and time again is that students, because I'm a special education attorney, and parents will say, they're telling me exactly how they feel. They're telling me exactly what's happening at school, but the students don't have the skills to do that outside of the home because of some regulation issue or communication issue or Something else is getting in the way of their ability to communicate. So when they're regulated at home because they can sit on their mom's lap or they're in their pumpy beanbag or whatever, do that 30 minute, 30 minute, 30 second video and say, this is what I want. This is what I like from the horse's mouth, which is way more effective 
than from the parent's mouth. I, I love that. That's so great. Patrick, you have been awesome. And because you are so wise, I can't wait to get to these questions with you. We like to end with fun and you're okay. such an interesting guy. No pressure, but I know you're going to have good answers. What are you reading right now? He also has a newborn at home. So we will give him a little. <laughs> Not me. Right now I am reading the back of my eyelid. That's what I'm <laughs> reading. What's that book the first year or whatever? What I can't think of. Yeah, what to yeah. extent? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could say that I've read that. I'm more of a fly by the seat of my pants kind of guy. I'm going to, I'm going to just go ahead and figure this out rather than try and read a book and follow it to it. But uh, no, I, yeah, I, I've got a couple books. I actually recently met Tobin, who, if you are familiar in Northern Kentucky with construction companies, Tobin Builders has pretty much built half of Northern Kentucky. I got to meet and talk with him a little bit last week. And he, of course, had tons of books that he wrote in the back of his trunk and he gave one to me. And I asked him, I said, Matt, I'm sorry, but for a man that makes as much money as you do, why are you still selling books out of the back of your trunk? Because a 91-year-old Matt Tobin says, how do you think I have this money? So, <laughs> noted, noted. So I do have a book that he wrote about his history and journey from being a German immigrant many decades ago to creating and building, uh, pun intended, one of the largest construction companies in the Midwest region. When I get around to it, I fully plan on reading that because it came highly recommended by some friends. And he is a grandson that has Down syndrome. Yes, yes, that is fantastic. Gotta love the uh, full circle connection. What about podcasts or audiobooks? You got, are you listening to anything? I pretty religiously listen to a podcast called How Did This Get Made? If anybody is familiar with the TV show, The League, a couple of the actors from that, probably about 12 years ago now, started a podcast where they just watched those movies that are so bad that you just can't stop watching them and go, how the heck did this movie get made? They watch those movies and then they sit down and talk about it for an hour. I'm a glutton for a good movie, whether it's good, bad, or painful to watch. I often will find myself just kind of listening to them talk about a movie from the 1980s where there were killer robots in a, a shopping mall that wreaked havoc on a group of teenagers. One, For me, I'm just mostly that guilty pleasure. What can I do to unplug my brain from something right now and enjoy what I'm listening to? Yeah, I love it. This one's for the whole team because we, I think we've all been in Patrick's situation. So what are you watching in the middle of the night? And I'll go first. It was Full House. That's awesome. Yeah. What about you, Christy? What did you watch in the middle of the night with babies? That's, I can't, I think it was like weird stuff, like criminal minds, like <laughs> creepy stuff. I don't remember. I clearly blocked it out. <laughs> I don't remember at all. Parks and Recreation is the one that we put on. It's just, it's great because we've got nine seasons to go through. So we're hoping that'll make us through maybe the first six months and waking up and feeding at 2 a.m. is a 45 minute process. So we can get two episodes in. And yeah, when you're that kind of delirious, having a good chuckle, having a good laugh is definitely needed that late. All right. I remember you guys are drawing my memories because mine's embarrassing. It's like really going to speak ill of my parenting. I was deep in the Sopranos and the wire. It was like intense watching. I, you're right in line with Christy then. And we still have DVDs. I remember we had the DVDs <laughs> of The Wire. You had to like get out of bed and put that in implications there. for my oldest child. What to look into. Patrick, thank you. You've been so helpful. It's so wonderful to have as a guest. No problem. Thank you all so much for having me. Thank you, Patrick. Congratulations on the sweet baby. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Thanks for taking time out of your day to join us. If you are interested in learning about the University of Cincinnati's special education, undergraduate or graduate programs, 
please visit us at online.uc.edu backslash special education. If you are interested in learning more about our programs for young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, please visit ceh.uc.edu backslash ATS. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at advancetheconversation at uc.edu.